Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, today is part two of our episode on the American millinery trade and its workers. Last episode, we left off with a brief discussion of labor relations in the industry at the turn of the 20th century and some of the organizing efforts that were undertaken in the fashion industry to correct the working conditions that were endured by fashion workers, including milliners, many of whom were immigrants. And this period around the 19-teens was a hotbed of labor organization in the fashion industry, really kind of spurred on, well, at least in part by the disaster at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911, which Cass, I now realize that we have never really spoken about in too much depth on the show. So listeners, if you would like for us to do an episode on that, please do let us know. The teens are where we pick up today with Nadine Stewart, author of the book American Milners and Their World, Women's Work from Revolution to Rock and Roll. Nadine, of course, joined us this past Tuesday to chat about the establishment of the millinery trade in America during the late 18th century and its development in the hands of its practitioners, who were largely women, during the 19th century. And Nadine, as you may remember, is an adjunct professor of fashion history at Montclair State University in New Jersey and a visiting lecturer at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And in addition to writing about millinery, is also a hat maker herself, which we love. Yes, and the extraordinarily wide platter-brimmed hats of the 19-teens is where we're going to pick up today. And that shift to the very close-cropped closures of the 1920s. So without further ado... Nadine, welcome back to Dressed for Part 2. We have moved kind of in terms of our temporal discussion here into kind of the 19-teens, the 1920s. We have barely touched on the hats themselves so far. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about that. And the silhouettes of the hats of the teens to the 20s, we see this rapid transition in their silhouettes. I'm hoping that you might talk a little bit about world events during this time period and the social change, which actually precipitated the shifts in the types of hats that women were wearing. Well, that's very, uh, very evident in the 1920s, but it really started in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And of course, World War I was a big uh, impetus because women were were going out. They were replacing men uh, in lots of times in work, and uh, women were also getting more impatient. Also, the, the, even the, the dances and the music uh, was changing, and people were dancing. The, the castles, uh, Irene and Vernon Castle, uh, were, dan- were famous for dancing uh, these, uh, the bunny hug and all these, these new dances, which then moved on into the 20s. And Irene Castle actually uh, cut her hair short. Now, this was a big change. And at the same time, uh, you also have the movement toward uh, the 19th Amendment, women getting the right to vote, and the 18th Amendment, which is prohibition, which is also a, a, big, a huge influence at the time. But you, all, you have 
the hats then, you have this shorter hair. And women actually, it changed the way hats fit and the mm-hmm. hats were made. So the skills of the milliner that the milliners had slaved to produce really were became really became irrelevant because hats didn't really fit down over the head in the late 19th, early 20th century. You of course had your hair done and the hat sort of sat on the top of the head. You could even buy something called a pulastic, which was like a, a drawstring piece that fit inside the hat, mm-hmm. where you could actually adjust it. But the short hair meant that you wanted a hat that really fit tight around the head. And that's where the cloche came in. Right. And the cloche then fit the head pretty precisely, and it had to be blocked out of felt. So the skill set that is from one decade to the next, in terms of like the fashionable hat of the era, skill set shifts. 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 Not only does the skill set shift, but servants knew how to dress your hair if it was Mm -hmm. long, but they didn't know how to cut it. Right. So women were going to the barbershops, and I have a thing with Clarence Darrow, of all people, writing an article in The New Yorker about his experience in going to a barbershop and how it's changed because (laughs) women are coming in there. But also the skill set means that the hats had to be blocked out of felt. Mm -hmm. And women didn't know how to do that. And it does take, I can speak from experience, it does take a lot of physical strength. So the males were the blockers. So they, of course are going to be paid more money. And this creates another rift between, you know, between the workforce and between people. So it's, um, and the, the, you know, of course, if you have a job and you're in a specialty where it pays a lot more, you're going to hang on to that position. Right, you're going to fight for it. You're going to fight for it. So the milliners that had the old skills were really in many ways at a disadvantage. Now, it doesn't mean women stopped wearing hats. They did. They wore hats. And there weren't just cloche hats. There were other sort of verbs, but they had a deep crown. Mm -hmm. But it really was a drastic shift. Yeah, yeah. And another shift that we see um, in the 20s and even more so in the 1930s is we start to see the rise of what I say, quote-unquote, celebrity milliner as well. Can you tell us a little bit about this moment in time when some, not all, but some milliners kind of like stepped out of the shadows of, you know, relative anonymity and into the spotlight and were considered artistes? Well, it's often, uh, it was often really difficult. And Mm -hmm. often women, uh, milliners early on, would even change their names to pretend they were French. But in the 1920s, probably the first woman began to emerge that we mentioned is Lily Dashay. Mm -hmm who, of course, is French, though yes. we, actually we consider her an American milliner because her entire real career was here. But, of course, you still have you still have that waiting to see what's coming from Paris. Mm-hmm. But you do begin to have, and you also have people not just in millinery, but are also making them, uh, like Hattie Carnegie, who are bringing things over. So there's the beginnings of even more um, sort of uh, American fashion world. American bread and born. American fashion. bread and born. <laughs> it's not really, you know, there, but but you you will be and it really hits, of course, in the 30s and 40s, then mm-hmm. it really develops. Where you have uh, you know, and you always have these milliners in these small towns who I think are somewhat little celebrities in their own towns. But the other thing was that Vogue, for instance, uh, did not mention American millers. You had to go into the shop section 
to see Merrigan Millers. It didn't really happen until the 40s when they began to do layouts with mentioning American Millers. And of course, Dorothy Shaver in the 30s uh, really changed things in many ways by doing windows at Lord & Taylor's of American fashion. And she did a window uh, with ha- windows with Sally Victor's hats. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't, that was, that's really was very, you know, important to kind of begin to establish Americans. Yeah, and, and so we've mentioned Lily Dache. Um, you've very briefly mentioned Sally Victor, and I think we might touch on her again here in a second. But who were some of the other big names that we start to see emerge in the American millinery scene during the 1930s? Well, the wildest, one of the wildest ones was Mr. John. Yes, he's fabulous. And Mr. John was uh, was part of a group at the initially, I mean, he changed his name several different times. Um, he was part of a group called John Fredericks in the 30s. And Fred was, his partner was kind of the guy, I think, behind the scenes that did the books and stuff. But Mr. John was just, I mean, he, he sought notoriety. He did radio shows and he did, you know, you know, he did all kinds of shows. He was really, shall we say, quite outgoing. (laughs) (laughs) And his hats were, you know, were really, um, Lily Dashay talks about him in her book and saying that he puts a coal scuttle on a woman's head and persuades her that it looks good. (laughs) (laughs) They were a a tad outre, I would kind of say. That's what he was really known for. Right. So you and I have talked about this a little bit ahead of time, but uh, dress listeners, I will go on the record here and say that I did not ever expect to be speaking about the mob <laughs> on the podcast, <laughs> but this twist that you detail in your book, Nadine, is so fascinating. Would you tell us a little bit about what made the hat trade the target for organized crime around the same time? I'm going to mark this in the book because I really wanted to be able to get it accurately. For one thing, and I mentioned prohibition, mm-hmm. which came in with the 18th Amendment right before the women got the right to vote. Of course, that's illegal money that's coming in for liquor in right. large amounts. Yes. So the mob acquires large amounts of money. And so they seek to take over uh, and also to really ingrain themselves in the structure of society by taking over the, they didn't just try to take over the millinery union, but they tried to take over, they, and did take over a number of unions. Um, and this is a, a way you could come in off, say, begin to offer protection mm-hmm. uh, and get paid for it. Uh, you could also uh, then, of course, fleece the workers for fees for protection. And you can also actually literally take over the union itself. The Hotware industry uh, was was uh, targeted by a man named Little Augie Organ, and he was an East Side gangster uh, who had a squad of gunmen, and he appeared at the offices of the big New York Union Local 24, and was backed up by uh, Legs Diamond, who's actually uh, there's a book about Legs Diamond uh, written by a respected uh, writer from the uh, 80s called uh, William Kennedy, and he wanted uh, money. And he guaranteed, then he said, what he would be is guaranteed uh, no strikes and lower wages. He went, that, that that's what was his pitch to the owners. So little Augie was shot and killed. And so he was taken over by a guy named Tough Jake Kurtzman. And he continued to try to infiltrate the garment trade. And finally, in, in 1931, the president of the Milliners Union, uh, Cap Workers Milliners, persuaded the New York, as the New York governor, um, Herbert Lehman, 
to help expel the mob from his union. And Lehman set up a commission Mm-hmm. that actually 700 volunteers who over sort of overran the millinery district downtown and they called the workers out on strike uh, in the shops that were, quote, protected right. by the mobsters. And the uh, police commissioner joined in and this actually uh, was able to uh, get the uh, mob out of the millinery's union. But mm-hmm. that was many unions, of course, that did not happen. Yeah. But I, I admit that when, when, when I found this out, I was researching this. Mm-hmm. And when I, I came across this, I was just as surprised as you were. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. So Mr. John was making these fantastic hats in the 1930s. Um, and we see hats just go off the rails in the 1940s. You have a quote from Life Magazine in the book saying, since the dictionary definition of a hat is a shaped covering for the head, (laughs) women can go completely haywire by wearing what they will and still call it a hat if it covers the head. And this seems most appropriate for the 1940s. What happened in millinery trends during the 40s, especially in the context of World War II? Well, before that, the late 30s, um, that's actually my favorite period because uh, that's when surrealism, Mm -hmm. the art of surrealism, really begins to influence all fashion. And, of course, that's when we have the famous shoe hat by Elsa Schiaparelli. And done. But there's just fantastic, fantastic hats that are just all kinds of different shapes. Um, And they just keep coming. It's like they keep coming up with things, veils and wimples and of course, the doll hat is another thing that's extremely um, controversial. It's this tiny hat that's worn in the front of the head, often with a snood. It, for some reason, I, I think part of it was that in the 30s, particularly with the Depression, you could change, you didn't have to buy a new dress, but you could change the look of things more easily by getting a new hat. Mm-hmm. Even though I think the impulse to get a new hat is sort of even bigger than that. But that's what, I mean, you see just every single thing you can think of uh, is, you know, they make, they, they had hats influenced by pork chops and hats influenced by, of course, and there's, a, of course, a lot of birds, even though, of course, the birds are not made like they were in the beginning of the 20th century before the bans on uh, millinery murder and the bans on feathers. But they can still replicate them with uh, domestic feathers. And so there's just, there's a ton of different, I think, I think they just, there were lots of millers and they just, it, the creativity just spilled out. Mm-hmm. You know? And what role do you feel like the war specifically played in that kind of wacky, whimsical? Um, For one thing, Paris was shut down. Mm-hmm completely shut down. And so they couldn't depend on Paris. And so you see all these articles of, can we do it without Paris? I mean, Mm -hmm. literally concerned and worried about Paris. And Morse de Camp Crawford wrote about this and saying, go to the museums and get inspiration. And of course, there's pictures of uh, of people like Sally and Victor doing this. Mm -hmm. So they were, it was kind of like going out and trying to find, and, and also millinery wasn't under the L85 restrictions mm-hmm. that all the other industries, shoes, dresses, coats, w- were. They, they were able to kind of continue on, even though they, you know, they had tr- problems getting materials, but they weren't under these very, very rigid restrictions of the L85. So I think that contributed to it too. 
And also just the opening up of just trying to do, you know, all these different things to keep the millinery uh, world and, and, and the fashion world going. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said that like a, a hat can be a source of joie de vivre, right? Right. And if the times are trying, why not wear a fabulous hat? So Sally Victor, you and I have a shared interest in her. Some of her wartime creations are wacky and <laughs> wonderful. Uh, we have some great photos um, of some of her creations at uh, FIT and Special Collections. Do you want to do the honors, perhaps, of describing some of her wartime designs? Um, she got inspired by, of course, there was a worry of, of, of blackouts. And so she got inspired by these black hat hats. Some of them were made in, in France. And so she came up with a hat that had a little flashlight mm-hmm. that you could put in the hat and wear it. And also you could actually move, remove the flashlight and put it in a dressy hat that you could also wear as well. So it was kind of moved around. She also was, and she and Lily Dache particularly, I don't know that Mr. John did this, but a lot of them designed things for women on the assembly line Mm -hmm. and the work line to protect their hair. Uh, They were called safety snoots. And she designed quite a few of those. And it was funny because I set out once for uh, someone at New York Historical to try to find one. And most of them were probably thrown out. And I, you know, went around. And years later, uh, after the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art had actually cataloged their Brooklyn collection completely and posted it, I went, for some reason, I went online and they actually have one. Uh-huh. And I would never have thought to go there, of course, the Met, to find a safety snood. But there is a Sally Victor safety snood with the v, red V for victory mm-hmm. in the front. She turned them out. She she didn't mind her hats being copied, mm-hmm. unlike Mr. John and Lily Dachet. She she really she was sort of endlessly creative, and she, her hats kind of range from really sort of mundane hats like bonnets made of calico, to really fantastically blocked pieces, really intricate. And actually, I went up to the Met recently to see that kimono exhibit, mm-hmm. and they have a hat of hers on display there. Oh, interesting. And I, it isn't in the catalog. I looked before I came to see if maybe they had it in the catalog. So I didn't make any notes about it. But it's about, I think it was about the draping of the mm-hmm. hat. It was a straw hat and the way it was kind of draped and the brim was draped. So I was pleased to see that they, because they, often people don't, you know, include millinery and something like that. But she just was really constantly turning things out. And she was a very much an American product. She was born in Scranton. She worked actually for a while as a buyer at Bambergers in Newark. And she took over this. And she she was the, some of the leading milliners in the in the country for years. Yeah. And, and she was part of this group that was a professional organization called the Millinery Fashion Inspiration Group. I did not know about this again <laughs> until I read your book. So who formed this group and what was their aim at the time? The wholesalers were behind it. The people who were wholesaling hats to um, a more middle, mid-level, mm-hmm. you know, not a couture uh, level of millinery. And they wanted high-style hats for their customers at moderate prices. So the idea was that Mr. John, Sally Victor, and Lily Dachet would get together every before every season and each design 20 hats that they would then allow to be uh, used and copied at this uh, more moderate rate. Now, it didn't last very long because as Lily Deshay talks about how they would get there and chit-chat 
And, you know, one would say, well, we're doing, we're, tokes are going to be in style, and another would say something else. So they never really coalesced. And the other problem with this is none of them were credited on the labels oh. when they were sold. So women didn't know that they were necessarily getting a hat by uh, one of those, inspired by one of these people. So I think it didn't last much more than three years. Mm-hmm. But it was an effort to get uh, a more high-end hat at a, uh, more at a lower price. Yeah, and, and also perhaps a little bit too to the point of combating hatlessness. Oh. Because this became a huge point oh. of focus for the industry following World War II. How did milliners go about attempting to fight the quote-unquote rise of the hairstyle? You know— this is going on. This has been going on. It started in the 30s. Mm-hmm. They were worried about young women not wearing hats. And they were actually uh, persuaded uh, the leading Deb of the day, uh, debutante of the day, Brenda Fraser, to appear in a picture in Vogue in a hat. Um, sort of a, I think it was kind of almost like a circlet. But they thought, oh, that that took care of it. Now young women won't. And then during World War II, another group uh, emerged. The generation that grew up in World War II were called the Bobby Soxers. Mm -hmm. And they also did not wear hats Mm -hmm. out. And Lily Dashay was, of course, concerned about it. She came up, though, with something called the Dachette, which was like this net piece that's shown in all kinds of colors. Sally Victor really campaigned against being hatless. And she went to a training session where she... uh, you know, was going to train women, girls and talked about millinery and she got in and none of them wore hats and she was, you know, gave them this very stern lecture. But as time went on, after the 50s, of course, people moved to the suburbs mm-hmm. and the lifestyle in some ways relaxed, uh, even though I can remember my mother, when we went into town, you dressed up. Right. You wore gloves, you wore a hat, uh, she wore heels, she walked around all day shopping in heels. I don't know how she did that, but, um, you know, it was just, it was the kind. But as time went on, each new generation, it seemed like, in the in starting in probably the 30s, began to get away from, from wearing hats. Right. And then, by, of course, by the time the 60s came along, uh, it really, with the, the hair, because that was the other thing in the 50s, was that the cosmetic industry... Uh, was on the rise. Mm-hmm. And the cosmetic industry would actually preview and show their new colors. It was like a fashion uh, runway of makeup makeup every season. But also there were uh, innovations of um, hair color, mm-hmm. of uh, hairspray, of permanence. Uh, the Tony Home Permanent did um, advertisements for the Miss America pageant every year. And if you put that much effort into uh, your hair, you don't want to crush it with right. that. Right. And that's what began to happen. And then by the 60s, when you have these teased uh, pieces, which are actually too big to get almost to get a hat over, Jackie Kennedy was one, you know, she wasn't the one that uh, was behind the demise of hats. It had been going on for a long time. Um, but she had to wear a hat because the milliners, uh, hatters were big contributors to her husband's mm-hmm. campaign, $300,000. But she, uh, she wore the hat with a pillbox style, and she wore it in the back of her head. And the man be- kind of behind that was Halston. Yes. 
uh, where she went to Bergdorf's um, hat salon, and he was able to, to feature and fit her. So that's really what happened in a nutshell. You know, hairstyles become the thing. And we have celebrity hairstylists instead of celebrity milliners. Kenneth was one of the, it was just a huge hairstylist. And you see them in fashion magazines, all these celebrity hairstylists. Mm -hmm. So it's really. Vidal Sassoon, another one. Sassoon with the haircuts, right? The cuts. So you really begin to see uh, a complete, sort of a complete real shift, which I think we're still dealing, living through today. Yeah, and, and and that that was that takes me straight into my next point. I was going to say that you know, comparatively, fewer of us wear hats today than we did a hundred years ago. Um, but that does not mean that they have given up their cultural importance um, in any way, shape, or form. You know, it really millinery remains this treasured source of expression and pleasure for many American and African American, especially churchgoers. Yes. So, would you talk a little bit about? the current and historic importance of millinery in the context of wearing one's Sunday best? Well, the really important, and I I was really happy that I, it took me a while to write this book because I then got access to the wonderful memoir by uh, Bill Cunningham, mm-hmm. who started out as a milliner. Right. And Bill Cunningham really filled in the 50s for me in so many ways. But he talked about going up to Harlem and uh, showing off these hats at Harlem and how great it was. And the reason the church hat, as we call it, is so important in uh, Black American women's culture is that a lot of these women couldn't head jobs that they couldn't wear a hat. Mm -hmm. They were cleaning houses or things like that. They couldn't get other jobs. So Sunday was the day to dress up and really wear a hat. And actually... It's one of my favorite things. If you go to the uh, the African American National Museum in Washington, on the fourth floor, they've recreated May's Millinery, nice. which was the millinery shop of this woman, uh, May. And they have videos of May. They talk about, and she had a her. She started that that business in the '40s, and it it went for quite a few years. They have interviews with her, interviews with the men who work for her. And they have some of her hats. And what's wonderful is when you, you're in there, women will come in and they will remind them of their mothers and remind them of their hats. And they'll talk, you know, we talk. And I, when I was there, they showed me pictures of their mothers in hats. And it was just this really, it's really just a great, it's just a great cultural thing well, and, and really part of the whole thing. Actually, that kind of brings it full circle to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like the millinery shop being like this woman's fear as, mm-hmm. as socializing. Right. And in many ways, your experience actually at the museum brought you right back it really into that great. same space. And actually, there's another thing that I didn't, I didn't put in the book, but I just read a book called Dressed for the Resistance. Mm-hmm. And I was interested, she, she made a point that hats also show resistance. For mm-hmm. instance, the Black Panther's beret or the pussy hat, mm-hmm. the um, MAGA baseball cap. Mm-hmm. So you know, they can they can send a message, mm-hmm. which which I thought was interesting too. Yeah, yeah, they they have been platforms of expression of politics of of personal life events since the 18th century. Yeah, you know, you you spoke about the naval battle of Belle Poule, uh, memorialized in one of those great poofs. But 
women were also um, speaking about very personal issues in there and their right. headwear at that same time as well. So. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I just, I think the contemporary, now the contemporary millinery scene is, and I think, frankly, I think Great Britain is really the center mm-hmm. for this. Uh, they have great training and um, they wear them. I mean, I talked about in the book about how I went to a wedding in uh, in England, but it's been quite a few years now, but the Americans, of course, were there with their very carefully coiffed hair and the Brits had fast, this is when the fascinator was coming in and they had just these wild, wonderful hats. And it's more a part of just nothing unusual. Mm-hmm. But I begin to see it here now, too. There are, you know, people, you know, but it's more you wear a hat now. It isn't you wear a hat because you have to or you're supposed to for a certain event, you know, like going to church or, you know, that kind of thing. You wear it. Sometimes, you know, there's a practical reason if you want to be mundane about covering the sun, sun, but you just wear it because it's individual. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't like to wear it. They feel it too obvious. But you just have to get, you know, get used to that and you just go on. And um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's really a form of personal expression. Of course. That's the way I view it. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. I'm an honored to be here. I think it was a great, it was just a great thing to do to be able to talk. I could talk even more. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Nadine. Thank you. Nadine, thank you for joining us this week to discuss American milliners, their lives, and the trade in general during the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. Such a fascinating topic. Dress listeners, as we have learned by now, hats were considered an indispensable item of dress for centuries. And it's really only in the last 75 years or so that American fashion has signed off on going hatless on a daily basis. And prior to this, the wearing of the hat by both men and women was considered a necessity as the hat was really a marker and an emblem of respectability. And in the case of women, sometimes even virtue, it was so intimately connected. Yes. And and while today hats may have lost some of their cultural associations to virtue in particular, they remain closely associated with certain special occasions, some of which are ceremonial, some are religious, others might be celebratory. But one thing is certain, the wearing of a hat makes a statement. And Cass, wasn't it Stephen Jones um, who once remarked something to the effect of that a hat is the exclamation point for an outfit? I love that. (laughs) Oh yeah, such a fabulous quote. Um, That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider adding that exclamation point to your outfit next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your feedback. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. See you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.